Callaway's new Rogue ST drivers represent a breakthrough in driver performance. The Rogue ST drivers are Callaway's fastest, most stable drivers ever. Think speed, go Rogue with Callaway, the kings of distance. To find out which Rogue ST driver is right for you, visit callawaygolf.com.au. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's ongoing quest to uncover the multitude of reasons that people get hooked by and on this crazy game. My name's Rod Murray and we're going to start this episode a little bit differently to normal by asking for a show of hands. Now, this is a test that today's guest likes to run whenever he's among a group of golfers. Assuming it's safe to do so, raise your hand if your first experience of golf was at a public course. Now, I don't have the statistics to back this up, but if Sandy Jamison is right, and I reckon that he is, then a significant majority of you will currently have your hand in the air. Now, you can put it down now. Sandy is our guest on this episode, and what Sandy's doing to champion the cause of public golf is truly remarkable. A PGA member who's coached PGA Tour players, Sandy's found his calling in life not in the world of private jets and giant fishing boats, but in the grassroots of the game, at a nine-hole, council-owned, suburban course in Melbourne called Oakley. If you follow Sandy on Twitter, and I highly recommend that you do, you'll see his almost daily postings of the people who make use of that facility. They range from refugees and the unemployed to suburban housewives and generations of families playing together. They're not the millionaires and high flyers that so many non-golfers think make up the game. And for many of them, golf is a welcome and sometimes only respite from the harsh realities of day-to-day life. As Sandy so often asks on that very same Twitter feed, public golf, worth investing in? He thinks so. And after you hear him today, I hope that you do too. Because across the world, the publicly accessible game is under threat. And it's up to us the current custodians of golf, to do something about it. Sandy Jamison, welcome, mate. Thanks, mate. Um, great to be here. Yeah, we talk often, obviously, for people who don't know. We know each other very well. So these interviews are always a bit interesting. When you already know somebody well, the in-depth stuff can take paths you're not expecting. Let's start with the jumping off point. There's a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about. The, co- the show is called The Thing About Golf. So what is The Thing About Golf for Sandy Jamison? It's ever-evolving. Um, I've listened to a lot of these episodes and – People are going to give far smarter answers than, than I, but I would suggest when I first started, it was as simple as hitting a ball in the middle of the club face, that addiction that you get from doing that, that evolved into hitting it in the middle of the club face and being able to somewhat control where it went. Uh, and then it probably took a, a turning point where it was about trying to beat other people, uh, a competitive thing, and... Probably the the worst part, it became about trying to prove to other people. It, was, right. it wasn't about me. And then it's evolved all the way back to, to coaching, which is really trying to help other people experience that beautiful feeling of hitting the ball in the middle of the face and progressing them rather than myself. There's almost three or four separate things happening now. That they're all tied to golf, but in their own way, they're all life journeys that people undertake in all sorts of industries, businesses and interests, aren't they? That the starting point morphs into something else and morphs into something else. Let's go back to how did it start for you? Because I think this is going to be important about some of the things we talk about later with your commitment to public golf and what you're doing with one club. But how did it start for you? My father loved golf, although he didn't play very often. 
and he didn't play very well, to be fair, but he just loved it. And his clubs were too big for me, so he went down to the local sports shop, Cliff Hoth in Box Hill, and bought me a short five iron. Did he want you to play, or did you want to play with him, or do you remember, or was it just something that was going to be naturally happen at some point? I think I would have been picking up his clubs. I used to use his putter in the backyard and so on, so I was interested and um, you know, we used to bury dog food cans in the backyard and um, mow it old down school. with the victor. Old school. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, he bought me a club that was more appropriate for my size. So five iron. Everyone will tell you these days you shouldn't do that for kids. Is that true? No, definitely not. Cut down a five iron is fine? Fine. Okay. Um, and from there, so where does it go from there? So you've got a five iron. At that stage, and it's probably still true today, finding a place for youngsters to be able to hit balls and play was somewhat difficult, wasn't it? You weren't allowed to play on the golf course proper off until 12 years old. So what sort of age were you? I would have been under 10, yeah. uh, and we used to hit balls on the footy oval the, and the local school. I mean, back then there were no signs up everywhere saying don't hit golf yeah. balls. Don't try this at home, by the way, kids. <laughs> this this is back in the past when Sandy and I were young. They probably put the signs up because of some of the stuff <laughs> I like did. like you, that's right, yeah. I would. Uh, my very first game of golf was at actually Currumburra, which is a little country course out probably an hour and a half away from Melbourne, two hours away from Melbourne. Still there, do you know? Still there, absolutely still there. And uh, my mate's mum took us, drove us to the back of the course and we jumped the fence and played a couple of holes. Lovely. Uh, with just with just our with our one club. And then um, Wattle Park Public Golf Course, we used to go there because you didn't have to be a certain age to play at a public course. And closer to my house than my high school when I got that old was the local private course, Box Hill. And I used to go and hunt for golf balls in the creek and sell them to the golfers and then just play holes on the golf course. And that's how I got into it. What do you remember about those times, Andy? What are the memories that you have and the emotions associated with them? Because I think most people's journey in golf is a fairly common story. Yeah, it is. I, I enjoy spending time by myself just with that, with that challenge. So I just remember probably fondest memories of sneaking onto Box Hill Golf Course at, you know, jump that a hole in the fence and I'd go and find golf balls and after the Saturday comp was over by about four o'clock, four thirty, the golf course was starting to become vacant and I'd just play on the golf course behind the fields and never really I didn't bother anyone. And um eventually they got me to join the club earlier than fourteen because it was fourteen then because they said, Well you're playing the course anyway, we might as well get you fifty bucks or whatever it was. For the thing. Can you still do that today? People tell you it's not possible to do anymore, the way you've started golf. Is that true? Look, it's changing. It, it, it really is changing. I think you could go to any golf course and get, as a kid, and show interest and sort of get there, but you'd have to do a lot more work than what I did in those days. We're a bit more free range in, in those days as kids, whereas now parents are encouraged to put them into structured programs, et cetera, et cetera. And are there up and downsides to that idea of a structured program versus a free range? Because I'm the same as you. We used to run around down in the bush behind our place where I grew up in north, north of Sydney. There's no way you would let a kid run around in that bush in this day and age, but we spent all of our summer holidays wandering around in the bush with the snakes and the spiders and jumping off cliffs into creeks and all sorts of crazy stuff. And it doesn't feel like that happens anymore. So there's been societal change. Yeah, there has. And look, from my point of view and where I'm going – a lot of the programs that are out there don't actually actually push the kids or get the kids out playing golf. They're on the practice fairway. So you might have kids who have done, you know, three or four terms of um, junior clinics, you know, supposedly a pathway, and they've never been on the golf course. So I, I, I believe that actually getting access to a golf course is fundamental and 
you know what, there's availability at public golf courses, you know, pre-pandemic, but it's dying off again now and the nine-hole courses are getting really quiet. So absolutely, go and play. We'll come back to some of that. So I guess what you're saying, the structured program can be a good thing if it's structured the right way. Correct. Yeah. And do we get it right at the moment? Often no, by the sound of it. Well, the pre-pandemic, I think the numbers would tell you, we, we, 25 years of, we haven't got it right. The game has survived and thrived for five, six hundred odd years. Why does it wax and wane in this modern era? Is it something that golf's doing wrong or is it a natural notion that people will go to and go away from golf in some sort of like fashion or some other sort of trend? Look, I think that there's um, they've built far more golf courses, for starters. There's, there was a lot more golf courses um, now than when I was a kid. So they're, I suppose it's um, watered the numbers down at each course. I think that a lot of other sports make it far easier to get into and the team sports and so, and so on, and I think that that's really important too. You, you would want to see kids play a whole range of sports, not just golf. I don't really have an answer. Yeah. I, I, I just think that... Um, Is golf a more complex pursuit to start with than, say, football or tennis. To me, one of the appeals of golf is that it's quite a complex, multifaceted, nuanced sort of a game, which might be more difficult to get started in, but I think what it does is breed more of a lifelong passion, perhaps, in a certain segment of that. I think golf's a simpler game than all those other games. I know you're going to say that, and that's kind of what I was getting at. So do we overcomplicate it? Massively. And oversimplify it sometimes? I don't think we oversimplify. Well. I haven't seen it oversimplified. I, I, it's, it's massively, it's been massively made complex. I mean, golf is far easier to play than football and tennis and any of those sports because you're not relying on someone else to have a skill to play with you. I mean, playing tennis with someone, if they can't get it over the net, is not much fun. No. Or And vice versa, being the person who can't get it over the net is no fun. Playing football with somebody who can't mark or kick is no fun. Whereas in golf, provided you can um, play at a speed that doesn't upset anyone safely, you know, no one cares whether you have thirty hits as long as you're moving along. It becomes it becomes complex if you tell someone before you play golf you have to be able to have all the skills. You must be able to hit your wood. You must be able to hit a fairway wood. You must be able to hit an iron. You must be able to play a bunker shot or a putt because that's just simply not how. That's not how we start any sport. Is it surprising in some ways that we've never had a specific beginner's pathway into golf? We have, um, but it was organic, I guess, what you were getting at earlier. So my memory of having a five iron was my dad giving it to me and saying, go and hit some balls, son. I, in 1999 or 98, I was lucky enough to be working over in Scotland and I played golf at North Berwick and I went into a junk shop after after the round of golf, and there was this cut-down hickory club. It's called the Horn. It's about a five-iron. I still have it, and I picked it up, and it was an amazing sort of thing for me probably because it reminded me of my own story, but I envisaged an adult taking a child out into the back shed with a hacksaw and cutting this hickory down, wrapping a grip around it, and saying, hey, follow me out in the golf course, and let's just go and hit some balls. And that would have been the starting point as the as the child, you know, got hooked on the game and grew, they would have got some bigger clubs and, and so on. But that's not where that little hickory club stopped. It may have been passed down to twenty or thirty different yeah. kids. So it was informal, but look how complicated is the game? It's a simple game. Have the least amount of shots as possible to get it in the hole. That's it. 
there's nothing more complex about child golf. can understand that, can't they? I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I heard um, I heard James Sutherland, the new CEO of Golf Australia, the other day saying, "Well, all golf is golf if you hit a if you hit a rock with a stick, that's golf." Well, it is. I mean, there's frisbee golf, mm-hmm. and the game of frisbee golf is to get it in the net in the least amount of throws. Foot golf. I mean, it's a simple game. Yeah, the concept is so simple, isn't it? and then we add humans into it and we complicate it. In oh, many ways, unnecessarily. We do, and I think as golfers, there's this culture which sounds like a really nice culture, but it's it's not helpful, and that is that everyone wants to give you some advice. Mm. So a new golfer starting out, if you if you can be really patient and let them make a whole lot of mistakes, they'll figure it out. They'll do a lot of their own learning. They will, absolutely. And that's not to say that golf lessons aren't valuable. They are. They're really valuable, but not golf lessons every time you hit a shot or golf lessons every week. And not golf lessons from a 10 marker or your 20 marker mate who happens to be sitting next to you at the time. They're the, maybe the most dangerous of all, which brings us kind of neatly, Sandy, to this and the thing you'll be best known for amongst a lot of people, two things you'll be known for, your pub, your campaigning for public golf, which is really important to be imported, but one club, this idea of one club. Can you tell me about what that's about without going too much? I know that there's things happening in the background. I know that you're working on things. But what's one club? And and make the connection from one club to that Hickory Club for me. Okay. Well, end of 2019, I was sort of midlife crisis maybe. I don't know. But I was looking at my place in the industry and looking at my future. Golf had been declining in the private space by a percent a year for 25 years. The public golf courses was closer to 2%. You're going all right, by the way, for people who don't know. You coach a lot of tour players in your time before you came back, and you coached at a very well-known and prestigious private club here in Melbourne. Uh, so it wasn't like Sandy was at the bottom of the PGA rung in that sense. Yeah, no, I had, look, I had I probably – people tell me I had a good reputation, and I was, making a, I was making a good living out of it. But you reach a point in life the kids are getting a bit older and you, you question your purpose. And also, I was looking at my future. So, if golf was declining at such a rate, and I was not yet fifty, and I wanted—I never want to retire. I always want to be able to go to work. But what was it going to look like in fifteen years' time? Well, I had to go and create some more customers. So, I was at this really nice private golf course, and to be honest, I—I come from fairly humble background, and I always felt like a bit of an imposter there. It's funny; I, I still do when I go to a private golf course. I'm the same. <laughs> so. And so I went back to the public courses where I started and you could fire a gun around them. These little nine-hole public golf courses, like where I ended up at Oakley, it had gone down from 42,000 rounds of golf per year to 17,000. If that happened in any business, the alarm bells should have been sounding long before you got to the 17, shouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think councils, for the, a real strength of councils is they're willing to provide facilities for people to use. And a weakness is they, in many cases, they don't know a lot about golf. And we could go down the rabbit hole, but PGA professionals were no longer running them. And previous, when I think a, a large part of the success of public golf courses going back 25, 30 years ago is the PGA professional who was there was on a percentage of the green fee. So they would convert as many people to golf as possible because it was in their best interest. It's a simple incentive idea, isn't it? If you incentivize people to do certain things, those things will generally happen. Yeah, whereas if you go into a lot of public facilities these days, you'll find nobody behind the counter who has the skills to introduce a new golfer, and they might be sitting there on 25 26 bucks an hour Aussie, do- Aussie dollars, and 
for them, if it's quiet, it's good because they can sit down and study their uni course or- they still get $25 an hour. And if it's busy, they still get $25 an hour. Yeah, 100%. So, so I looked at these courses. Many of these little nine-hole courses didn't have practice fairways. And when I saw a business in distress, I saw opportunity. I thought, well, if I can get a deal where I prosper for more golfers on the golf course, that will do it. So I really just retraced to, well, how did I start? And what have I been doing over the past 25 years? I've been delivering, you know, sign up five lessons, learn how to putt in the first one, chip in the second one, pitch in the third one, um, hit a wood in the, in the, in the, in the fourth one with a full swing and play a bunker in the fifth one and set them free. Never take them on the golf course. And I was watching these people and listening to their comments when they said, Oh, it was really intimidating playing on the course. So I thought, well, how did I start? And then this little hickory club. So I, I re-engineered a golf club for my own, which we call the smart club. Uh, it has a putter grip on it. So I don't, I don't teach anything. There's no technique. Thumbs on top, hands close together. There's a circle in the middle of the club face. I say, well, you got to hit the ball in the circle while the circle's pointing at the target. And you got to hit it with the length of swing you can already do. So you've probably heard me in the past say, well, there's no golf coaches at mini golf. Everyone can putt. It's true. So we start off with small swings on the putting green. It might, it might resemble at the start of field hockey. So we get out off on the golf course. People learn four things. Well, we've moved it to five recently, but, um, four things, safety, speed of play. So as long as you're, and this is to be a good golfer. My, my promise is within 15 minutes you'll be on the course. Within an hour, you'll be a good golfer. Safety, speed of play. They learn what is their existing level of skill. So I don't teach them that. So if someone's hitting it 10 meters straight and they can do it without holding everyone up, that's fine. Or if they can hit it 50 meters or 100 meters, that, that's also fine. They learn to look after the golf course. And the fifth one we've added is to be good company. Mm. Good company with the people you're playing with and the others on the golf course. So, you know, you could play golf with someone who has an even par round of golf and they carry on like an idiot the whole way around and you haven't enjoyed it. So I'm not calling them a good golfer. Yeah. There'll be lots of people listening to this who have gagged up a little bit at the notion of you don't teach any technique or any of these other sorts of things. There's a disconnect between how we used to do golf and the way we do golf. It's happened slowly, hasn't it? But what you're outlining there is actually how, as you did and lots of us did, that's how people used to learn golf. Golf is a lifelong journey, isn't it? The notion that you can give somebody five one-hour lessons and have them be able to go out and play golf the way they see on TV, it's madness, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and look, I think lessons are really, really important. Yes. But what... I'm doing as a PGA member, I'm creating people who are addicted to golf. And then they go for lessons because they're seeking to be better at a skill that they now perceive they need. So for anyone listening to this, you'll be amazed at how empowered people feel when I take them on the course. And the second hole at the little course I'm at is a par three. It's about 100 metres long. And without telling them, I put them on the stopwatch before we start the hole. So they've played one hole of golf and they've learned to watch where their ball goes, when it's their shot, to go up and play conversation, you know, stop-start conversations rather than I'm talking about the football on Saturday I keep going, it's your turn, play. I'll, 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 as we're walking in between shots, I'll ask them about what they do for a job, all that sort of stuff. So, so it's not just rushing them. 
at the end of the hole, I stop the stopwatch, I take them off the back of the green and I say, well, I was timing you there. And the business of golf, every eight minutes another group hits off. This little short hole, if you can't play in eight minutes, well, you're not a good golfer because you're going to cause a bank up. The longest I've had any group of four new golfers take is six and a half minutes. So I say, if you can keep doing that, you're welcome on the golf course anywhere, anytime. You're going to be great. Now, where we got to that, the empowerment people have by saying, wow, I can play golf. Because as an industry, we'd built golf up to be difficult over a number of years. People were scared to try. So now, over 500 people in a couple of interrupted years have come through that pathway and every single person has met my tick as a good golfer within an hour. There's 500 customers that now are not intimidated to go on a golf course and a fair, a, a large percent of them get the bug and then they want lessons, then they want sets of golf clubs, et cetera, et cetera. It's just taking them on the golf course first. Yeah, indeed. Just down of interest, have you ever timed groups of existing golfers on that hole and how many of them come in under the eight minutes? Oh, I had this conversation just yesterday with a young kid I played who's playing in the Sandbelt Invitational Classic played at Kingston Heath yesterday. It took over five hours to play because existing golfers were using systems to read greens and do all this sort of stuff. I think that um, – Range finders, oh, caddies. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think they've got a place, but I think that the sheer, the sheer enjoyment of playing golf is being active, moving around. And- of course, the interesting thing about that, and that's professional golf, they're playing for a living, and so that is a different thing. But that is the product people see on TV before they experience golf, isn't it? And so we need to be careful about what we do show people. And the same is true of golf courses and what they should look like. Television golf does a lot of things that doesn't necessarily work for the benefit of golf in the longer run, doesn't it? Yeah. God, it's so boring, isn't it, watching golf on television? Now. Often, it's just, yes. It's, unless it's the end of the I'll, – I'll watch the last nine holes of a tournament when – when the the game's on the line, but we don't do – I don't buy into if we have another Greg Norman, golf will be busy. I don't buy that at all. And, you know, there's been a lot of money spent over the Tease years. that out because most in the industry, and I'm one of them, have accepted for a long time because the years when Greg Norman was the world number one golf in Australia did have a boom. You're not the only person I've met in the industry who suggests that that might have been more coincidence than cause and effect. Yeah, so the, I, I'd, I'd state a few things since then. The, the Australian golf industry spent a lot of money trying to develop elite players to under that guise that, that Greg Norman bought them. In that time, both um, Adam Scott and Jason Day have had been number one in the world, and golf didn't spike at that. So could we say, well, oh, maybe they haven't got the charisma. That's been being nasty, but it's not just their golf. Maybe it was Greg's full package. The Another guy you've had on this, Christian Hamilton, showed me a fantastic graph years ago, which was showing golf going up in um, in popularity when Greg Norman was booming and then dropping off when Greg stopped playing. And that was what that was a graph. Showed me another graph that was happening at the same time going up with Greg Norman and kept going up. Showed me another graph that went up with Greg Norman and dropped off with Greg Norman. Okay, the graph that dropped off with Greg Norman was immigration from the UK, Ireland, and Scotland. The graph that went up with Greg Norman and kept going up was immigration from Southeast Asia. As a game, we didn't go out to these people immigrating to Australia, showing them that it was a game for them. There were middle, there were quite wealthy people, 
but middle class in China can't play golf. Middle class in India, well, you you wouldn't even see a golf course behind a fence. So as a game, we did not evolve our our game to be more welcoming and inclusive. And you could go into every private golf course pretty much across the country now. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, how many how many people from an Indian background are at your private golf club? How many people from a Muslim background are at your private golf club? How many people from an Asian background or Chinese, Asian? It's becoming more and more. Does your golf club look like the suburb that it sits in? Correct. And in many cases, no. That'll be quite stark for some people to think about that way because a lot of them, you live your life and you've got your habits, you go to the golf club and that's the way it's always been and always looked. And if you stop to think about it, that would be quite confronting for a lot of people, I would think. It would, but I would put it this way. I mean, if we're selling a product, if we're saying golf is a product, membership of golf course is a product. If I was running a a tyre business, um, like you were telling me your dad used to run, I was running a tyre business in um, Cabramatta in Sydney and I didn't reach out to the different demographic, I'd be stupid. Mm. You'd also probably be out of business. Yeah, 100%. So as a golf course, if we don't look like our community, that's not good. So, for instance, Oakley, where I'm at, is in the city of Monash. There's 44,000 people in the city of Monash who speak Mandarin or Cantonese. I trained up a community coach who delivers my program in Mandarin and Cantonese. Well, it's simple business, but also for a public golf course. Private's a bit different. Well, it's a lot different. But for a public golf course in a community, if they're not offering programs for the different demographics, they shouldn't be there. If you look at... Um, it's a public responsibility, isn't it? If it's a council-run facility, they have a public responsibility to service the entire community and proactively so. Yes. Imagine the, imagine your local swimming pool. So in the city of Monash, to be honest, I haven't gone to the local swimming pool, even though there's one right next to our thing. But I'm sure they run programs... For people of different backgrounds and cultures, I know in Box Hill where I grew up, they used to have a night at the swimming pool for people with a Muslim background because the women needed to have the pool to themselves just because of their their background. And yeah, as a council, we need to provide that. Let's come to public golf because it's a really interesting. This is the one we probably talk about the most, you and I, between us. There's... It's under pressure worldwide, and we see it here in Australia. There's a lot of people and a lot of councillors who think golf courses could be used better for a different purpose to golf. Outlay for me some of the reasons why there's some flaws in that thinking. And is it always the case that you're better to have a golf course than to turn it into a park? Definitely not. I think I have no issue with um, with golf courses being under pressure if they're not meeting their social responsibility. No issue at all. And I think that the way golf courses have been set up over over the journey have not met with that. So, like, for instance, Oakley Public Golf Course, where I'm at, we are definitely meeting our social responsibility. We have lesson, We have golf being delivered in the main other language of the area and we also have golf being delivered for people with disability. So there is definitely a place for that. Public golf is super important, but I think one of the things we need to do to let the rest of the community know that is we need the rest of the community to understand the difference between public golf and private golf. And a lot of the cases of the people that we speak to who don't play golf and are thinking they should turn the golf course into a park, it's because they think that public golf is rich, white and male, and it is definitely not that. 
It's not hard to find examples of that, though, is it? Definitely not hard to find examples of that. And the people who are re- actively campaigning against golf, they do nothing to um, to highlight the fact that it's any different to that. So, you know, Northcote at the moment, which is the the one which is being decided next March, there is definitely that campaign going. It's funny enough, I went to my cousin's place for a for a Christmas thing in right next to Northcote Golf Course just on um, on Saturday night. And um, though the people at this party, let's just say they were very much from that area. Lots of them don't drive, very green in their thinking, used the golf course during the lockdowns. And when they found out that I was actively involved in trying to help it, well, they asked me why I explained and they're happy with it. They said, well, that makes common sense. You know, we can, we can share space. We can, if golf, you know, brings the fences down and provides walking tracks for us to join our parklands up, we're happy with that. They've no issue. No. Now, it's just a bit of creative thinking on the part of golf and golfers in many ways, isn't it? There's a, there is a segment of golfers who won't stand for the notion of anything but golf on the golf space and everybody else is to be excluded. That's very dangerous thinking for public golfers. It's okay for private golf, okay in the sense that so private golf can survive under that model, but public golf really can't, can it? No, and I think um, for anyone listening to this out there, if you're playing golf at a public golf course and you want it to stay exactly the same way it is. And if in many respects, it's a, a cheaper version of playing at a private club. So you've got tea times that exclude, you know, women, tea times that exclude old, younger people, et cetera, like a veterans group. I think you're going to be really disappointed at the outcome. Just like if you want the place to be used as a park, you're going to be disappointed at the outcome too. There needs to be some give and take and public golf needs to become more public and less, and less of a, a mini version of a private golf club. Other sports don't tend to have this image problem, do they? Cricket, football, people who aren't interested in cricket or football tend not to be anti it. It's not hard to find people who are anti-golf. No, it's not hard, but I think we t- this is another point which is really important. Cricket, football, for examples, softball, netball, predominantly played by younger people. And in the community, most of us are really happy to push younger people's playing sport. But again, they think, oh, golf's for, you know, golf's for older, richer people. Whereas the fact, the message we need to put out is, hey, golf is one of the very few sports that people in the community can play for life. And council budgets, government budgets need to go to providing recreation for people in all those different age demographics. Not many of them play football. Not many of them play, you know, softball in those old ages. We need to do that. The truth of a football field, Sandy, is it really services a demographic that's predominantly male, though changing, between the ages of about eight and early to mid-30s. Yeah, indeed. And I'm going to say something which some people are going to fall over and probably some people in golf admin are going to fall over now. The most important thing about public golf going forward, for me at the moment, is women and golf. So organisations all around the world are trying to get more women to play golf. The pandemic has been a really bad thing for women in golf. Tease that out. Statistically, the women in golf in Australia is 18% of people who play golf, which is through golf link numbers, private clubs. Private club membership. 18% are women and then 82% or whatever are male. There was vacancies in golf clubs pre the pandemic. 
the golf club I'm a member at, I went to an induction, uh, belated induction just recently. There was 36 people coming to the club. There was only one woman. Only 12% of people in the stats that have come into the golf club during pandemic have been women. So that means the amount of women playing golf is less. And now the golf clubs are full. There is no capacity for more women to join the golf clubs. Right. So we've actually made the issue of women, made it worse. Yeah. And that is... Not be, deliberately. No. Nobody's saying there's been some evil conspiracy, but the reality is blokes have come back to golf and taken spaces that now can't go to women even if they wanted to join up. Now, there'll be golf clubs out there saying, that's not true. We've got space for women. My question is, have you got space for women on Saturday morning yeah. for working women? Because women work, and that's been a major part of the drop-off however let's go to public golf my little golf course i did a straw poll over a month 31 percent of the people who play at the public golf course where i'm at are women interesting so and there is space for women to play golf at public golf courses this i the covid boom as some people call i call it more of a bubble because i'm seeing what's happening at grassroots it's dropping off rapidly the the numbers playing as rapidly as it went up oh yeah absolutely so you know I had, um, you know, I saw stats at lots of public golf courses, not just mine, and it went back to pre-pandemic at the little nine-hole course. Right. Not not the case at the 18-hole courses, but your nine-hole golf course was always designed to be where you start out. It's, a feeder. Yeah, it's a it's like it's like kindergarten for primary school. You wouldn't get rid of kindergarten because if you do, it's going to affect primary school. So. It's dropping off, but that's where we really need to be open, actively promoting women in golf at these public golf courses because sheer weight of numbers, if I can get 200 more women playing at Oakley getting hooked on the game, out of those 200, I'm going to get a lot who just want to play social golf. That's great, and the same will be this case for men, but I will get a push on forward of those who are interested in competing and that's the heartland of private golf. So eventually you will get a push through at private golf clubs. Why is that important? Golfers out there who will tell you, women just are interested in playing golf. Why are you trying to force women into golf? Because it's not true. So there's – and it's not just women. Let's get on to private golf courses. Private golf courses are predominantly about competition. At least 50% of people who play at the public golf course where I'm at don't take a scorecard because there's so much more to golf than competing – Whereas if you look at, you know, and in a lot of cases, private golf clubs are addicted to competition because they get their comp fees. So I haven't had an issue with women wanting to play. In actual fact, Golf Australia, if you went into the statistics, will tell you the vast majority of people who sign up to learn to play golf class are women. So in my career, it would be above 90% of people who come to a learn-to-play golf clinic are women, and yet that's not showing with people playing golf. And so what happens after we've taught them to play golf, Sam? Yeah, well, that's it. I, I have an analogy for that. Imagine staggering out of a nightclub at 1 o'clock in the morning. No need to imagine. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a hot dog van the other side of the nightclub, and I go up there and I pay my 5 bucks for a hot dog, and they show me how I cut the bun and they show me how I might put some butter in it and I put the sausage and put the sauce on it and then I don't get to eat it. So, you know, we've done that to a whole lot of people in these beginner clinics if we don't take them onto the golf course after. I know of driving ranges that are doing above 50 new beginner golfers a month that fit into their program and at the end of the month 
That's it. They don't take them to the golf course. That, that, that's paying for my hot dog and not getting to eat it. Yeah. It's ironic, isn't it, that a golfer can go and spend time at a driving range and find a job and maybe even do that for weeks on end without playing golf and be quite satisfied with that experience. But you can't do the reverse. You can't start and just hit golf balls at a driving range and have that be a satisfying experience. Yeah, I think it's getting better. Like the technologies of the driving ranges mm-hmm. now with Top Golf and so on, and you know this push all golf is golf. Is like, it? So I, I'm not anti Top Golf, but is it golf? Yeah, look, it, it is, and I I would suggest you know what we're talking about through you know the Golf Australia talking about all golf is golf. Well, it is. However, if Every golf course falls over because now everyone's playing alternate forms of golf. Well, the whole structure of the organisation that's built around a handicap system, it falls over. So, yes, all golf is golf, but ideally we want to provide opportunity for all those people who hit a putt on mini golf, hit a ball to driving range to get onto a course and actually play. I don't, want to, I don't want to harp on this, but let me take you back a step. If you'd found that five iron, your dad had given you that five iron and taken you to top golf, would you be a golf pro today? That's my point about the experience that is golf versus the act of hitting golf balls with some contrived notion of scoring and points. And as I say, I'm not anti-top golf. And it doesn't matter whether people go to top golf and go on to become golfers. But to hang the notion, hang a lot of hope on the notion that you can convert a large number of people from a top golf or driving range style idea to golf easily, I don't think holds order. Because ultimately, it's the hole at the end of it and everything that happens between the tee and that green, which is golf. So there's the question. If he'd given you that five on and taken you to top golf, would you be a golf pro today? Yes. And I'm quite happy to – my own personal experience tells me I got the five on, I went to the local school oval, and I hit golf balls on the oval and got addicted to that feeling of hitting a nice shot. But if he took me to top golf – and I didn't live near a golf course. I could jump the fence and find golf balls and hit balls around or have a public course near me, Waddle Park. If that didn't happen, I would not be a golf pro. So Waddle Park's a really interesting example. Uh, two-time major winner, David Graham, he started at Waddle Park. Uh, Left-handed, Yeah, and, as it and, turns out. Yeah, and a great, another great professional, Glenn McCulley, he started at Waddle Park. He won Australian events. He's... Runs a magnificent golf school at Yarrawonga. Lots of people listening to this will have been to Glenn's Golf School. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a whole host of other golf pros who came out of Waddle Park. So if I just went to Top Golf and hit a ball in the driving range and Waddle Park didn't exist, I would not be a golf pro. And if Oakley didn't exist, if Northcote didn't exist, there would be let's forget about golf pros. Listen, there would be no other people playing. So, look, for people for people listening to this pod, you're probably sitting in your car, typically when I listen, or on the train. You're a golfer. You're a golfer. What I want you to do, I want everybody to put their thumb up. I'm not going to put your hand up. Just put your thumb up if you're a golfer. Yep, thumbs up. What I want you to do, I want you to put your thumb down if you started playing golf at a private golf course. There might be a few thumbs down. Won't be a lot. Let's define private and public. I say a public golf course is anywhere you can pay green fees and play. So they're semi-private. Semi-private, which is probably most people's experience yeah. in reality. Country courses and so on. Suburban but, courses yeah. tend to be often semi-private, don't they? Yeah. And part of my, part of my um, campaign on this is 
I think private golf courses, and I'll upset some people here, I think private courses need to take more responsible responsibility in their local public golf course. Because if you're on committee of a golf club and you're listening to this, do that little thumb up, but at the presentations next, you know, Saturday, Wednesday, Thursday, whenever it is, ask everyone to put their arm up and do the same thing. And what you'll find is your customers, members' customers, all started at public golf courses. So if you let the local public golf course fail and don't pitch in, don't get in touch with the council and say, hey, can we help? Can we make it more viable? If you don't do that, your business will dry up. Callaway's new and improved Chrome Soft family of golf balls is better for everyone. From amateurs to major winners like John Rahm, Phil Mickelson and Annika Sorenstam. Now with Callaway's proprietary new precision technology, the Chrome Soft family delivers Callaway's highest quality, best performing and most consistent golf balls. To learn more about precision technology and the new and improved Chrome Soft, Chrome Soft X and Chrome Soft XLS, visit callawaygolf.com.au. One of the things that was happening when I was at Commonwealth Golf Club, which I loved and enjoyed, I had a lot of success about a beginner program we ran at the golf course, which in my opinion, looking back on it at the time, was entirely inappropriate. Commonwealth Golf Club course is one of the best golf courses in the country. It's a F1 racing car of golf courses. It's got deep bunkers. It's got fast greens. It's long, etc. Not really a beginner-friendly place. And the members who play there pay a lot of money to be able to come out and play the golf course whenever they like outside of competition time. They want to have a good experience. Having a group of beginners in front of them struggling to get out of the bunkers is, again, not appropriate. So those private golf courses rely on the public golf courses and they need to they need to be a little bit more concerned about that. It's like the Moore Park thing in Sydney the Aussie Golf Club is how far away? Oh, it's only a few k's, if that. It's yeah. not, not far. Not far. So did the Aussie Golf Club pipe up and get involved? No, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know that they didn't, but my instinct is that they didn't. Did the Lakes, which is not far away again? Not to my knowledge, but again, I don't think they did as far as I know. And if you went to the Aussie Golf Club or the Lakes or any of the golf courses nearby and asked, did the same member put your arm up if you started at Moore Park? Yeah. Huge. We, we all have a responsibility to it. It's a funnel, isn't it? The, the business analogy is the funnel. Public golf is the big part at the top, and that's where everybody can have a chance to experience the product and decide whether they want to go on to purchase the more expensive products in the range, which are the private golf clubs further down the track. So if you're in private golf, if you're thinking 20 years ahead, you can't not think about public golf. Correct. Also, too... You know, people say, oh, people are busy, et cetera. Well, public golf is the opportunity to play the game at a casual basis. You know, I'm a member of a golf club, so I, in my head, I want to play a certain amount of times to get some value out of it. If I'm a place in my life where I've got young kids, et cetera, and I only get a chance to play half a dozen times a year, I know I can go to public golf and play it. But if you close public golf courses, now that option is not there, so I will probably just not play golf. You won't go back to the membership, will you? The public golf can carry you through that period. And we see that statistically. We know that families, and there's a time in life when work and family takes priority over golf for a lot of people, yeah. but that they will come back to it later when those things ease off. And we need to – this obsession with youth, I don't mean young people as in primary school kids, but this 
uh, 18 to 30, we've got to get this demographic involved in golf. I'm not convinced necessarily that that... I agree. And There's a whole demographic of 45 and over who we should be targeting, really, because they're people who've played before, will come back to the game, will spend money, will be a part of the industry, happily if we go out and reach out to them. And I'm happy to be controversial again, no problem at all. I've said to golf clubs, I think it's a waste of time offering a discount for under 30s and under 40s. Agreed. And those people will still play golf, and they will play golf at the pay-to-play. Those who are going to will play, and those who aren't, you're not going to encourage them to buy. And you know what? Some of those people are on massive salaries. However, if you look at the market coming out, so my wife is a perfect example. She's just turned 50. Sorry, love. Told everyone. You've outed her. I've outed her. Sandy. And now my my youngest is 16. My eldest is 19. She has time. She's joined the golf club. She has time. She has more money. Our school mm. fees are – and she earns the money, but the school fees are, are less and less. She's the market. Mm-hmm. I had an idea for every golf club out there in Globland. If you got rid of your discount members for your under-40s and, your, and, your, and so on, and you said, right, every – couple that includes at least one woman that comes to your golf club gets a discount for coming as a couple well now we're going to have more women playing golf and we target the demographic which is 45 to 55 they got the money they got the time the interest quite often quite often they've been golfers at some point in the past now they want they've always said when the kids grow up we can go back and we can focus on playing golf and really get back into golf the way we wanted to there's a whole there's a whole slew of people like huge so the nature report which is where the review of australian golf's futures got come out so there's 9 million people in australia who have not yet played golf who say they're interested in playing golf 9 million customers and if you look at the amount of women who have taken up clinics and those sort of programs we know a large percentage of them so they're interested what we have to do, we just have to take them on the golf course and show them they're welcome. It's not hard. Well, the problem isn't the customer, is it? The problem's the business. It's yeah. us who are running the business who have to swallow the bitter pill that we've been the problem in at virtually all of these junctures. The image of the game is our own fault and the fact that it continues to be the image of the game amongst non-golfers. What we do with people who show an interest in golf and how we so often put them off when they do come to try it, all of these things are mistakes that the golf industry has made. There's no... There's no imperative for non-golfers to take an interest and try to discover golf. Golf needs to go out and earn it, doesn't it? Yeah, 100%. And we need to reform public golf courses to make sure that happens. And as golfers, we need to let everybody know that, hey, public golf is different. Public golf, like at the little course I'm at, $13.50 for concession. That's kids or or pensioners, $13.50 or $18.20 or 20 bucks on the weekend for a game of golf. Hmm. What else can you do for 20 bucks? Oh, people who say the game's expensive simply take the notion having a boat can be expensive too. A tinny doesn't cost you much. A super yacht like Tiger Woods gets around and does. But to take his boat as the example and say, well, see, it's only for the rich is nonsense. And it's the same with golf. Golf can actually be extraordinarily cheap. Into What does it cost to go to the movies or an AFL game? Yeah. What does it cost to take your family to an AFL game in this day and age and have a couple of beers and some hot dogs and whatever? Well, you're not getting out of there for under 120 bucks. I wouldn't have thought. For, say, four people? Yeah. Okay. You can play golf at uh, – you can play nine holes of golf for under 80 bucks. And if you – my little Twitter feed, I have a bit of fun with it. And one of the things that I did a while ago during the pandemic, and I still do it occasionally, I was taking photos of people's golf clubs they came to the golf course with and put them up there. And – they were going to op shops and they were going and buying them on marketplaces online. Fifty bucks for a set of clubs. That's perfectly, stuff- perfectly fine golf clubs, by the way. Nothing wrong with them. Oh, stuff that stuff that was yeah current 
20, 30 years ago, and they're having a ball with it. They didn't need the brand new driver to have fun. You can deck yourself out to play golf for 50 bucks and go play for 20. I just bought my um, nephew a Sharon for Christmas. He's a mad footballer. Oh, I hope he's not listening. No, he's not interested <laughs> you, in golf. You've just given him up. Yeah. Not, not interested in golf. A Sharon, some Sharon he wanted. Cost like 140 bucks for, for a footy. For a football. For a footy. Do you have to pump it up yourself? <laughs> I'm not touching it. That's an outrage. But so golf's cheaper than footy. Hmm. In terms of entertainment, it's, it really does stack up. If you if you only you only need to scratch the surface, and it's a common myth that those in the anti-golf camp will put up is that it's expensive and exclusionary. I mean, it can look that way from the outside, but it's actually not true. And golf needs to do a better job again of selling that story. So. A call to action for everyone out there. We love a call to action. doesn't mm. matter where you're listening, what country you're listening in. Do yourself a favour and go back, if you live in the same sort of area, go back and play the little public golf course. You just go back and have a round. Now, at worst case, you might be a member of a private club paying fees. Worst case scenario, put your 20 bucks over the till and play nine holes and tell me if you didn't enjoy it. Because mm. I guarantee you'll get out there and the course won't be as looked after as well as your course. But you'll hit a tee shot down the first, and as you're walking down there, memory lane, and you'll see a tree. You say, geez, when I hit my best drive as a kid, I only just got to that tree, and now I'm 80 <laughs> metres past, past it. it. Exactly. So the memory lane will come back, and you'll realise that there's stuff about golf that you actually enjoy more than some of the stuff you do at your private club. Because I guarantee you a lot of people who play private golf clubs, because I used to make money out of them, they stress about their score and how many points they're going to have because they have to expose themselves to what you have today as you walk into the bar and, oh, I had 25 points. So there's none of that at public golf course. You know, wear whatever you like and just go and experience the game as you picked it up mm. and and see what comes back when you play that. I bet you'll have fun. Yeah. Give me your analogy about dress regulations. You just reminded me when you mentioned that. T- tell me the te- the test that you like to put forward to people and ask them what they think about this. Okay, so the shopping centre test. Yeah. So right near where the golf course is where I'm at, we have Chadston Shopping Centre, which is like one of these. It's another planet. Yeah. The truth of it, it's enormous. Well, it's got its own, it's got its own hotel there now. Just I guess in case you get too tired, you can't get home. <laughs> so you can actually stay there in a five star hotel. So my analogy of the shopping centre is: imagine putting people out the front of the shopping centre. And having a dress regulation from the golf course and not letting anybody in. Who didn't meet the dress. Who didn't meet the dress regulation. <laughs> well, you're going to get punched because the reality is someone might walk into that shopping center with a, a $200 pair of jeans on and an $80 t-shirt on. And you can't go to the golf can't course go with to the that. Golf course like that. I mean, no. it's another question for everyone out there. What is golf? Well, I would say if you looked at golf in the dictionary, I haven't done this. It's going to call it a sport, isn't it? Probably. It's going to call it a sport. Yet, at a private golf club, the women who love wearing active wear, mm. they I, can't wear active wear. To, it's a sport. At a lot of places, it is. It's- so, some of the dress regulations we put up, a lot of them bring with them a social exclusion, you know, from a certain, you know, collars on shirts. Well, the, well that goes back to wearing a tie and that yeah, goes back to yeah, there's a noose around your neck. Well, there's all sorts of class um, permutations for that They're about who wore collars and certain levels of society and the nonsensical stuff that we don't believe in anymore and haven't done for a long time. And look, don't get me wrong, I am not saying so. If you just, if you're both sitting here in collared yeah. shirts, by the way, yeah. because we're part of the culture, I just go and I don't question it anymore. But I don't think it's unreasonable for, for young people or other people to question why they need to wear a collar on their shirt. What's the difference? Correct. If you, and I'll, before I go to it, 
if the amount of people, if you're at a golf club, the amount of kids you see coming to your golf club wearing their school uniform because it's the only thing that complies to the dress regulations, what kid wants to wear his school uniform not to school? But for me, I'm not saying that all golf clubs need to drop their dress regulations at all. I have no issue the top clubs in the area that are full full memberships, waiting lists, joining fees. That's fine. And people join because they want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. But if your golf facility is not full and you're sending people away because they haven't got a collared shirt or they've turned up in jeans and that's how they're comfortable, well, I do question the right for your business to keep running. I question that. Well, it's a bad business decision, isn't it? What's your, what's your outlook, Sandy? What's your feeling about the future of golf? It feels like it might be at a real crossroads in many areas at the moment, golf, from the very top levels of the professional game and these disruptor leagues and things that we're seeing there, right down to where you are at the very grassroots, a nine-hole public golf course in suburban Melbourne and the work you're doing there to grow there. What's your feeling? Are you optimistic about golf and its future? I'm definitely optimistic. I was Is that madness. <laughs> I, you know, I was more optimistic before the pandemic, when these clubs were flailing out of control downwards, and they were really under threat. There's an imperative there, isn't there, that, which forces action. Yeah, pe- people, administrators, and um, and management groups and councils willing to try anything. I think that um, there's been a complacency come in. I'm massively optimistic about golf because of the over 500 people I've taken out into the golf course, when they hit their first shot in the middle of the club face, that euphoric sort of drug-like thing comes over and they love it. So golf is a game everyone can play. We just have to take it to them in a format where they feel welcome. Hmm. I think uh, Andrew Marchbank talks about this I- I think he got it from somewhere else, but he, no, who was it that introduced us? Might have been um, Matt Day from the WA. There's this notion of shot euphoria, hole euphoria, round euphoria. And by the time you get to round euphoria, what you've got is a lifelong, dedicated, committed golfer. But everything starts with shot euphoria. And it may be that very simple thing that we've overlooked in golf and the notion of introducing people or selling, quote unquote, golf to people that's actually the product isn't it that that's the reason tiger woods still plays despite nearly killing himself in a car accident in february is to feel that shot that comes out of the middle of the golf club and goes where he wants it to go yeah absolutely i think we forget and that's why i wanted everyone to go back to a public golf course one of the things i do and do this next time it's sort of during the pandemic without flag sticks coming out it hasn't happened one of the things I do for every single person who starts, when they get to within a foot of the hole, I take the flag out and say, now I want you to hit in the hole and experience the best sound in the world. In the world. How, how's that? Everyone can hear it. it just while you're sitting here yeah. listening, you hit. and next time you go to the golf course, actually enjoy that sound again because we're too worried about how many points were, this was a putt for or whatever. No, no. Experience the feeling of hitting a shot and the sound it makes when it goes in the hole. I mean, it's a beautiful it's, it's thing. It's the full stop to a golf hole, isn't it? Yeah. It is actually the punctuation of a golf hole. There's the sound of that ball rattling in the bottom of the cup. And it doesn't matter where you go in the world. It's universal. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, and fabulous stuff. What sort of responses do you get from people who you've introduced to golf? They can't have all been positive and fantastic, Sandy, but I want one from each camp. Somebody who's come to experience one club at Oakley or come to see you at Oakley who's previously been anti-golf, and who's perhaps changed that perspective, not necessarily to become a dedicated golfer, and someone who's come, who's been sort of somewhat pro-golf and said that there's that what you're doing is wrong. And I imagine there must be one of each of those that you've come across. Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
let's go to the pro one first. I had a I had a woman I won't out her with her name. She came with her friends who came to my one club program and she didn't want to play golf because her husband was a total golf addict. Oh, a not uncommon scenario, by the way. No, not uncommon. And her husband was, you know, anytime she'd tried to hit a ball in the past, it was a thousand bits of advice and so on. So she came and she bought a one club and she kept it in the boot of her friend's car. Because so he she, wouldn't know. She didn't want her husband to know. Fabulous. Fast forward a month from when she first started. Now she's playing golf four times a week. She let her husband know. Her husband was trying to get her to go to the golf club where he's a member. She said, no, I'm going to stay here at the public course. Six months later, she's joined another private golf club with her friends. Not his. Not his. <laughs> Fantastic. They Well, it was actually so eight months later. They actually, they four of them went and joined Peninsula Kingswood. So right. now that's no small investment of time, well, money. I think they got a half price joining uh, fee. So I think including their first year's fee, they paid ten grand each, four of them. Wow. From starting with one club. So that's the I actually went for a game at PK and I paid green fees. There you go. There you go. So um <laughs> I didn't I didn't ask to play for free, to be fair either. I just went and played. I was happy to pay, but so yeah, so that that's the that's the real positive story. The negative story is not from a beginner. I've never had a beginner give me a negative story. I've had lots of people at the golf course say, "Oh, what are you, what are you doing up there? They're not even playing properly. You know, they've only got one club. That's not proper golf. Proper golf. We'll yeah, proper golf. I've also had people come in and say, "Oh, no, I want to learn properly. I want to learn all those skills first, and I want to learn X, Y, and Z first. I want a full bag. Yeah, I want the whole. I want. Buggy. I want the whole lot. What my mates have been doing. So." The the negative the negative response have been from existing golfers, and what I'm doing is challenging perhaps the way they think it should be done. Yes, are they a bigger issue than people who are anti golf? People within the game who are very set on what golf is and should be. Oh yeah, absolutely. So if you if you imagine one of the issues that we have on public golf courses, and I have it all the time at Oakley, because during lockdowns. It was being used as a park. There are a lot of locals who don't know anything about golf who are wandering across the golf course. I had uh, I had a, a mother and child the other day were about to hit off the first, and they walked down the side and they put a picnic blanket out on the fairway. Oops. So I just drove down there in the cart, and I said, hey, if you cross the bridge and put your blanket over there, you'll be fine. And I showed them the ball and the club. I said, you don't want to get hit by this. Yeah. And they were great. Whereas a lot of golfers start yelling and screaming at them. Get out of there. What do you think you're doing? Yeah. Are you stupid? How do you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so they're a problem, yes. When we think about traditional golf, some of those golfers we're talking about who think about golf a certain way, which has always staggered me. I'm, I'm into golf course design, as you know. And it's always staggered me this notion that a golf course has to have four par fives. It must have four par threes. And if it doesn't have that, it's not a proper golf course or a championship golf course, which is madness because it's the freest game of all. And you know, the best golf courses in the world rarely fit those criteria. Let's leave that aside. A part of the problem would be too strong a way to put it, but historically and traditionally, I don't know that our administrators have done a terrific job of selling the golf message to non-golf. Would you agree with that and what can they do about that? And how does that all plug in with what you've been doing at Oakley, which has been a fabulous public campaign, a very simple idea, Twitter with a hashtag public golf, telling the stories of those who actually play there? And the one club notion, which is an intriguing one to me and how that might fit in with some of those. Well, I agree. I think that in the past, well, actually, 
let's just be simple about it. Those who have been running golf for the last 25 years, if they were in a, in another corporate situation, say running a, running an airline without a pandemic and the airline was dropping by a percent even for a quarter, their jobs would be, would be at peril. I'm really confident now since the nature report came out, the, the golf bodies seem to be shifting. So the nature report quickly for those who might be able. Oh, the nature report was a AGIC, which is a all Australian golf industry. Yeah, Australian golf industry. They commissioned a report to be done on golf and the health of golf and what those who don't play golf perceive golf to be, and which is where they got the nine million people interested but not yet engaged. So they have pivoted. The golf bodies have pivoted to where they now see the importance of public golf. Maybe they already knew it, but because, say, for instance, Golf Australia derives the majority of their income from private golf club land. Mm. They were focusing on the bottom of the funnel. Well, that's a sensible business decision in a lot of ways, isn't it? Because if they're the people who are paying your way, then they're the people you've got to focus on. That makes some sense. Oh, a huge amount of sense. And everyone's always been good intention, but now they're pivoting towards the public golf, which 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 is key. And so I'm very I'm very optimistic about that. Where one club fits with that, I've been working in really closely with um, the PGA and with Golf Australia. They've endorsed it. They say what they like. They like it. It's great. We're going to a further proof of concept with the support of Golf okay. Australia and and the PGA, and we're going to prove the concept at some other golf courses, just to make sure that for some reason I'm not special. <laughs> you know, what if it only works if Sandy's running it? And trust me, folks, I'm not special. Uh-huh. Well, but regardless of the outcome, that's an encouraging step, isn't it? In many ways. Yeah. Them being prepared to engage at that level. I agree with you. I think that's a very encouraging uh, sort of a step. I'm also in mind in mind when you say that the PGA professional, very special and in, a really interesting kind of a profession job and role within the game, which is also an industry, the PGA professional. You've outlined earlier, you touched on earlier, the changes in a lot of pro shops no longer run by PGA professionals, those incentives not so much there. Talk a bit about the PGA, the group that you're a member of, the, the PGA and your brethren, and their role in a lot of this. PGA pros are really are the front line of golf, aren't they? Of even amateur golf, they're the very front line oh, they are. of the game. You, you are, if you asked anyone at any golf facility, any golfer, who the most important person is the facility for them, it would be the PGA professional. I don't mean to upset the general managers, but the PGA professional deals with the golfer. They're the face-to-face contact. Rules. Yeah, rules. Ask the pro, equipment. Yep. Ask the pro, course setup. Ask the pro, problem with your swing. Ask the pro, don't want to play with that bloke again. Ask the pro. There's there's not much that the golf pro isn't involved in, is there? What's changed in that time period? I've spoken to Mike Clayton about this previously. Those people were such an important part of so many of our generation going on to become lifelong golfers. Are we missing out on some of that? Is the change in culture in golf clubs and the change in society changed some of that? And can we get that back? I think we can. I, I think that, again, the pandemic was really bad for the PGA professional because pre the pandemic, the golf industry was saying, hey, we're in big trouble here. How are we going to pivot and how are we going to change our business to attract? And in many cases, the PGA pro was the innovator who could bring customers through the door. So they were, the PGA Pro was in a strong negotiating position. I feel really strongly, and there are so many PGA Pros in employed positions that do fabulous jobs. So I'm not saying the employed PGA Pros are not doing great jobs, but I think that we were in far a far better place 
when the PGA Pro was contracted and their business was based on how many people play golf there. The better they were at their job, the, the better they were rewarded. Exactly right. So I I think we can get that back and incentivize pros more. I think that with coaching, and I know myself, where I changed is because I'd been – my only income was coaching. So my the pro who gave me lessons, I was extremely lucky. Stephen Band was my local club oh, pro. Wow. <laughs> you hit the jackpot there, didn't you, really? Came off tour and was a club pro at Box Hill. Yeah. And he ran the shop and, you know, took the green fees and all that sort of stuff, and he gave lessons. And he only had a certain amount of time to give lessons, so he wasn't going to sell a lesson if it wasn't needed. He wasn't going to overcoach you. That was just how it was. But as a golf coach, the only way I earn money is giving golf lessons. And if Rod Murray wants to come every week and give me 150 bucks for a golf lesson... Whether it's good for his game or not. Madness not to take it. Yeah. So... And I'm not saying that I'm not saying that they're doing something the customer doesn't want, but I just turned around and said, "Well, you know, rather than have 500 regular clients or 100 regular clients, I'd rather introduce 50 new golfers to the game every week and be filling my be filling my books with creating new customers mm. because there's a better business model for me yeah. and for the industry. But unless um, unless I'm going to get a, a kickback from that, so. Pre-pandemic, for for those listening out there, I had Oakley up fifty percent in players on the course and money in the till in six months without spending a dollar on advertising, which is an extraordinary feat. And then we're going to bring this full circle and probably close it around this sort of idea. The reason the PGA professional is not just the incentive; the PGA Pro understands the game. The problem for a lot of public facilities is they're run by people who have no knowledge or understanding of the game and who think of it as a business like all other businesses, that, that running a golf course is no different to running a public swimming pool. And that lack of knowledge is, is fatal in almost every area, isn't it? Innately, the golf pro knows that among the things golfers want and will pay for is the condition of the course, um, things that people who don't play golf would never understand, that all golfers innately understand. And that's where that relationship breaks down. That's where a lot of public golf courses fail, for want of a better term, is the lack of knowledge of the product they're actually selling and how that product needs to be presented. Yeah, and the biggest weakness for the PGA professional is they're so passionate about that that to stay working in the industry, they'll pretty much take whatever is on offer salary-wise and quite often they're not paid very well for what they do. So they have the knowledge, they have the skills. It's my hope that... If I, I put the message out there a lot, if you're bringing people to the business and growing the business, you deserve to be remunerated for that. So I can tell you that on average, anyone I introduce to golf plays 1.8 times a week at the little nine-hole golf course. So I can I can quantify what that dollar value is worth. So if someone's not going to look after me in the long term for making a business better, am I going to introduce 10 golfers a week to them? Well, I'd be silly. Yeah. It's a, I'll go somewhere they will. The business model is backwards, isn't it? <laughs> business yeah. works when you run it sensibly. I do want to touch on the last thing with you, Sandy, and a lot of people may know this about, may not know this about you. You coach a lot of tour pros in your time. You got to a point where you were a coach to tour professionals, guys playing on the US tour, Robert Allenby, Jared Lyle, some of the better-known ones. You can tell us a few of the others that you worked with. Tell us about that experience, and I imagine that's very different to what you experience now introducing people to the game, and I imagine interestingly, there's probably similarities as well. Yeah, so I, I mean, yeah, Robert Allenby, Jared Lowell were the, probably the two, um, 
that I work with the most and had a lot of success with. I, I did a short stint with Wai Yang when he was in Europe. Um, Peter Fowler, everyone, Chucky's had a lesson off everybody. He's still, he's an amazing player. I saw him yesterday at 62 years of age, not only out there playing, which is extraordinary, playing, he's Australia's Bernard Langer. Yeah. And at 62, he's extraordinary. He was, he was swinging left-handed, taking practice swings left-handed as part of his warm-up. The amount of turn and flexibility, I was in pain watching him. I'm 10 years younger. Anyway. So your coaching tool professionals is very, very similar to coaching anybody. You're just trying to bring out what they do well naturally or their their own the best they can possibly do you're not trying to turn them into somebody else because it's their differences that make them better so when i'm introducing someone to golf i'm allowing them to use whatever skills they already have as in like hand-eye coordination skills spatial awareness skills to get around the golf course and make them feel safe and comfortable that they can try things and improve and they can fail at times because that's how you learn why teaching beginners is so much more fun than teaching existing golfers. When I take a beginner out on the golf course for the first time, they have literally played the greatest game of golf of their life. Yeah. They're on a high. Yeah. Um, when you coach professionals, they focus <laughs> on what they're not doing well. Yeah. And if they don't play well, they're going to blame you. So, well, not always blame you, but sometimes it's the caddy. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes it's the media, sometimes it's the wife, but every now and then it's going to be the yeah. coach, isn't it? And well, and, and even if they don't blame you, they're they and rightly so, they're looking to you for mm. the answers because tour professionals are, you know, their their job. They got to play well next week. Yeah, it's no good for me telling them. Well, you know, in six months' time or twelve months' time, they're going to say, "Well, Sandy, no, no chance." So the pressure's high. You're not. You're away from your family, and typically you're dealing with response to something negative. And lastly, how did you fit in in that world of private jets and six-star hotels and a lot of money? The PGA Tour especially is awash with money, isn't it? Yeah, I've um, I got to admit I did like jumping on a <laughs> private plane and, um, and, 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 and Robert Allenby had a beautiful boat and going fishing and those sort of things. But again, I looked – I kept moving to that's where I wanted to be. And it's a bit like I won a pro-am once. And after I won the Pro-Am, I'm driving home thinking, oh, is that what it was all about? What? The David Duval? Yeah. Went was, to the Open. And is that it? Is that it? Is that it? And coaching the tour professionals, it didn't really fulfill me uh, as much as I enjoyed it and I got a good relationship with the people. But coaching um, coaching beginners, like every single day you go there, you make someone happy and you, you, you change their life for the better. Like golf is the thing that, the thing that golf is for me too. You know, the, if we get touch back to why should golf courses still exist and would more people not get benefit out of a park? If you've got something going wrong in your life, you're not happy in your relationship or work or whatever it might be, and you go for a walk, for the time you're walking, you're <laughs> thinking about the yeah. crap that's going on in your life. If in the same frame of mind you go and play golf, all of a sudden your mind is totally consumed with getting that golf ball around. It's meditation. And it is meditation away from life. It, act, it it keeps your mind occupied away from the worries that you may have. Fantastic. That's one of the things about golf. Sandy Jamison, fantastic to catch up with you. Thanks for taking the time, mate. Really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it, mate. Thank you. As golfers, I reckon we're all guilty of often focusing on the things about the game that are unimportant and forgetting the things that are. I hope that dose of perspective from Sandy has helped you get back in touch with the reasons you were first drawn to the game. 
Well, that's it for episode 60, but I hope you've made the effort to follow the show because on our next, my colleague John Huggan sits down with two-time winning Solheim Cup captain and one of Scotland's best ever, Katrina Matthew. I, I think probably eventually they will rein in because you can't keep making golf courses longer. No. And you no. can just, uh, you're just getting better and better athletes, whether it's the the equipment, the ball, the, the players are bigger, they're stronger, they're working out more. Mm-hmm. You know, they're far more into their health and nutrition yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and being in the best shape they can be. So um, something's got to change or else you'll be having to have a 10,000 yard course. That's next time on The Thing About Golf. Golf.